This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. One thorny issue remains at the forefront of much of our political wrangling during this and every other political debate in the last four decades. That's abortion. And that's ever since Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court and a woman's right to choose became the law of the land. Well, here with an historical perspective on how this works and how the laws may be changing is Jonathan Parent. He's an assistant professor of political science at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Welcome, Dr. Parent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start by trying to gain some historical perspective on abortion. It was always my thought that abortion had always been illegal until Roe v. Wade, but in fact, when did abortion actually become illegal, and what were the motivations behind those early abortion laws? Right, so abortion wasn't illegal, actually, in any of the 13 colonies uh, prior to the Revolution, and then following the Revolution, um, the early Republic, again, there was no restrictions on abortion in any of the states. Uh, it wasn't until about the 19, or rather 1820s that uh, states started to pass laws that actually outlawed abortion, and in most cases, they would outlaw what at the time were known as patent medicines, and these were basically tonics or, or sort of other concoctions that women would take in order to sort of bring about an abortion. And so the reasoning behind the restrictions on these was was actually a concern over the dangers of these, these patent medicines. They, uh, more often than not, would sort of negatively affect the woman as much as the sort of fetus. Uh, you know, we were talking a 50% sort of success rate uh, kind of thing. So they, they were quite dangerous. Uh, and so early abortion restrictions were actually meant to restrict that. Uh, they had little to do with what we would understand today as sort of protection of a fetus. Uh, so New York, for example, uh, passed a law in 1828 that was one of the strictest in the country at the time. Uh, and by the time you get to about the 1940s, all of the states had, had uh, passed restrictions on abortion. So they were mostly to protect women, as you yeah, say. Yeah, largely, yeah. And it, it really wasn't about the right uh, the right of the fetus. No, there was really no conception of, of any, anything we would understand as the right of the fetus. The only sort of meaningful point that, that, that there was sort of any, any discussion of that at all would have been uh, post-quickening, um, post as they would call it, which would mean when the woman was able to perceive movement of the fetus in the, in the womb. Uh, prior to that, there wasn't really considered to be anything, you know, as it were. So Very interesting. So when did all this start to change? Right, so these laws stayed on the books basically up until the mid-1960s, early 1970s. Uh, a couple of states initially sort of loosened their abortion laws. Uh, Colorado in 1967 was actually the first state to pass a relatively broad uh, sort of abortion liberalization law. Uh, then you would have a few other states, um, Alaska, Hawaii, um, and North Carolina, surprisingly, uh, were some of the first states to loosen their abortion laws. A lot of times what they would do, though, is simply allow for abortions in cases of sort of rape and incest and, and uh, <clears throat> uh, the life of the mother. Uh, so yeah, New York was actually one of the first states to pass a comprehensive repeal law in 1970. So exactly what happened though around the time, it was the 60s and 70s, what were the political or social contexts for all those changes that took place, you know, building up to Roe v. Wade? Right, well there was a number of things. One was this sort of idea of sort of legalizing, and, I, and by legalizing I don't mean sort of not making illegal, but rather... Uh, the understanding abortion as a legal question, right? Something that, you know, was actually protected by the Constitution. This yeah. was a relatively new phenomenon. At the time, it had been very much a, a sort of policy slash health issue. Uh, the idea of constitutionalizing the question sort of came about in sort of the late 1950s initially. There were uh, there was a group called the American Law Institute which had proposed uh, a model penal code, and they had recommended that abortion be at least liberalized, abortion laws be liberalized, if not outright repealed. 
Uh, and the AMA, the American Medical Association, also sort of recommended uh, the liberalization of abortion laws in the 1960s. And so you get a number of sort of new understandings of abortion, um, one of them being this constitutionalization, the idea that it was protected. The right to privacy, for Exactly, one. yeah, which we first see in 1965 in a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. Uh, and then that sort of gets expanded out to include what uh, was originally about contraception, and then it ends up being sort of uh, broad to include abortion, and ultimately in Roe v. Wade. Uh, but yeah, it had a lot to do with the the women's rights movement, right, which was sort of a newish phenomenon, third third wave feminism in any case. Uh, in the 1960s, that that was a big uh, that was a big sort of motivating factor, uh, and there was also an increasing understanding of the dangers of of outline abortion, the idea of these sort of back alley abortions, exactly. the idea that women dying at the hands of untrained people, and it, yeah, definitely. And so, as a matter of fact, if you read some of the some of the literature from that, the the late 60s, early 70s, that was one of the major concerns of the legislators at the time who were who were debating this in the state legislatures was this idea that women were dying in large numbers because of unsafe abortion and and it was particularly there was even a, a sort of race issue to it too in the sense race and class issue in the sense Poor that women. it was well understood that that women of means were able to obtain abortions almost at will uh, whereas poorer women really weren't. These are the women that were really suffering because of the abortion restrictions. They were the ones that were forced to go to these back alley dangerous abortion mills that uh, you know would end up putting their lives at risk. Precisely, yeah. So basically, what happened with Roe v. Wade? Take us back to 1973 and the Supreme Court decision. What tipped the balance? I'm not sure anything particularly tipped the balance. I mean, it, it, so it was a 7-2 decision with Justice Blackman. 7-2. 7-2, yeah, yeah uh, with Justice Blackman writing the majority opinion. And it's basically an extension of this right to privacy that had sort of come about, you know, eight years earlier. Uh, and essentially what Roe said, Roe, Roe v. Wade, you know, a lot of people sort of understand it as this blanket legalization of abortion, and it really wasn't. Uh, what Roe v. Wade said essentially is that there are three sort of trimesters and each of those trimesters um, allows for different types of restrictions right so in the first trimester trimester uh, a state isn't allowed to restrict abortion at all in the second trimester a state can impose some restrictions on abortion but but not others uh, and then in the third trimester they're they're allowed to sort of ban the practice outright um, so this is sort of an interplay between the idea of viability right which is which was a big part of the decision as well but this this sort of trimester framework that that Blackman in the court comes up with is basically a uh, a compromise. It's sort of a, a way of saying, listen, we're, we're going to allow some restrictions at certain instances, but we're not going to allow these blanket sort of bans as they existed in, in 44 states at the time. But so. that was really groundbreaking. I mean, that was really fundamentally groundbreaking. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely was. Because yeah. it made it basically the law of the land as opposed to individual states. Right. And it was decisions. unusual, too, in the sense that typically the court will wait until more states have sort of played around with this issue and either, you know, uh, passed a liberalization law or, or something like that, even to looking at the same-sex marriage cases now, you know, there were a number of states that legalized it before the Supreme Court stepped in right. and, and nationalized it, whereas that wasn't the case with, with Roe. So Roe was a little un, un, unusual in the sense that the vast majority of states maintained bans on abortion when they when they issued that ruling. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with political science professor Dr. Jonathan Parent, and we're talking about the evolution of abortion laws and where they are today. Well, how have the religious and partisan views of abortion changed over the last 50 years? Right. So when this issue first came about, um, there really was no partisan split on this. You were as likely to find Democrat 
Democrats that were pro-life as you were to find Republicans that were pro-choice. Uh, the divisions that we understand today is the Republican Party being the pro-life party and the Democrats being the pro-choice party really wasn't the case back sort of when this issue first started to get on the agenda of lawmakers. Um, in matter of fact, if you take if you look at polls at the time in the early 1970s, uh, self-identified Republicans uh, and self-identified Democrats, there was very little difference in their views on abortion. You had large segments of pro-life and pro-choice constituencies in both parties. Um, and then this, this begins to change sort of in the 80s and 90s. Um, the same goes for religions. Uh, the only sort of major Christian denomination in, in the country that sort of consistently opposed abortion long before the 1960s was actually the Catholic Church. Uh, Protestant denominations were actually very much split on the issue and, and often took sort of a middle road. Um, there's sort of a famous uh, uh, position statement from the Southern Baptist Convention that essentially says, you know, we understand this is a controversial issue. We think that abortion should be available under certain circumstances and, and these sorts of things, uh, which is, you know, really flies in the face of what we understand uh, the positions of a lot of Protestant, at least uh, conservative Protestant churches today. So where do you think we're at today in terms of the opinion? I mean, do you think it's still, it's that polarized in terms of very strong, you know, very, very the right wing on the right and the left wing on the left. I mean, what do you think is happening now? Actually, as, as far as public opinion goes on the issue, it's it's been one of the most durable divisions that we've seen almost ever, at least in the last 40 years. Since this became an issue, the polls have actually moved surprisingly little. There, there, there's almost the same amount of sort of people identifying as pro-life today as there was 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, and pro-choice as well. So the polls really haven't moved. There's been possibly a slight increase in the number of people of Americans who identify uh, as pro-choice, but but really it's remained remarkably stable. And this is unusual. Most issues sort of go back and forth a lot, but abortion has really not changed all that much at all in terms of public opinion. What's interesting, though, is there have been changes in American society. I mean, you have fewer church-going people, I think, some studies suggest that there are fewer people uh, overtly affiliated with some religious traditions and possibly going to church and or synagogue less frequently. And um, I was always, I'm curious to whether the new, the new Pope has played any role at all. I mean, obviously he wouldn't condone abortion per se, but his general stance on a lot of social issues seem a little bit more um, open-minded. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, Francis certainly made an effort to de-emphasize, you know, a lot of the social issues, and he's he's more he's played up sort of the uh, more economic sort of social justice issues right. concerns, poverty, um, poverty, lack of opportunity. Exactly. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, as far as the Catholic Church, Catholics in sort of writ large, the the sort of lay Catholics. Um, they really have, in the last 20, 30 years, been very much a mirror of the American population in terms of their their views of, of abortion. So the position the church has taken and the position that the sort of laity has taken uh, have been very different. Uh, your average sort of Catholic, you know, American doesn't really view abortion any differently than the general public. They're not more likely to be pro, pro-life than, than the general public. In some cases, actually, Catholics tend to be somewhat more pro-choice, uh, particularly in certain Protestant denominations. So... The church certainly hasn't changed their position. That's 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 true, um, and I don't anticipate they will anytime soon. But realistically, that hasn't made much of a difference in terms of the opinions of Catholics themselves. You know, I'm curious about. I mean, there's always been um, a concern, and especially of late in, in our current political debate, about the role of the Supreme Court 
and this is going back to this whole notion of the, should the Supreme Court be a strict interpreter of the Constitution or is there a role for making policy, whether it's social policy? And obviously they always throw Roe v. Wade up as an example of that they're making law, making policy where there was one, there, there was none before, so to speak. What's your experience with that? I mean, what do you think has been happening here in terms of the Supreme Court? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? What's your What's your opinion on this? On this debate about sort of strict constructionism? Well, you know, I mean, I think that my own position is that strict constructionism as a, as a, as a, as a legal idea is really not something that's possible. I think it's really a smokescreen for what's actually a conservative interpretation. Reactionary. Of, exactly, of, of the Constitution. I don't think that, and if you look at decisions like Citizens United or things like that, you know, there's, it's tough to interpret those as strict constructionist decisions, and nevertheless you have justices who identify as strict constructionists supporting, you know, it. supporting that type of opinion. So really, I don't actually buy this idea of strict constructionism. I think it's, it's conservative judiciary, it's conservative jurisprudence sort of dressed up as something that sounds better than So that. In, in other words, just uh, reinterpret what you're saying or get what you're saying. You're kind of saying that of, of necessity, there is some interpretation that takes place. Of course. Across the board, and it depends on how the court is weighted, what direction it goes. Absolutely. I mean, the, the court is a political and politi body. And they're politically appointed. And they're so. politically appointed, and they have political views, and that's, you know, there's no sort of way around that. And the Constitution is simply a document that doesn't self-interpret. In the very little time we have left, what's being done to undermine the abortion laws currently that are on the books? statewide abortion laws that restrict access or no yeah what new laws are they trying right. to put in place to try to restrict access right so the biggest sort of thing that's been happening recently is what's called a target restriction of abortion procedure which is these sort of um uh, these the sort of um clinics clinics right so uh, admitting privileges and things like that putting which, more requirements right in place. texas has a you know is sort of the the, the example of this and basically forcing abortion clinics to close because they don't meet these certain standards, which most people understand to actually not be necessary and are really sort of naked attempts to simply close abortion clinics and limit women's access. So the fight isn't over, so to speak. Not not by a long shot, no. no this will be an issue for, for, as far as I can see, the foreseeable future. <laughs> I appreciate your coming in and giving us this very interesting historical perspective. My guest has been Dr. Jonathan Parent. He's Assistant Professor of Political Science at LeMoyne College in Syracuse. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.